recording now. Brilliant. Mm -hmm. So I suppose what we'll do, um, I've introduced myself to everyone. Today is not about me. Yeah. So let's go. Let's go around the table. So um, Anna, um, I will call Izetel Anna. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself first? Uh, yeah. Thank you, Chris, for inviting. So I'm Anna. I'm a senior product manager at Izetel. Uh, I've been with the company for more than four years. Uh, currently, I'm leading uh, a team that is responsible for developing uh, experience for external developers. And also, we are working with a lot of partners in order to fulfill needs of our merchants uh, through partnerships and integrations. Um, prior to this, I was building several teams at Izetel, uh, which were solving uh, different uh, problems of our merchants, but uh, my biggest focus was on growth, uh, on market expansion, and also on delivering uh, cross-company missions. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, Bruno, I can tell you're eager to go second. <laughs> sure, I'm drinking all my tea here. <laughs> nah, yeah, hi guys, uh, my name is Bruno. Uh, I have a versatile background. I also a business intelligence developer, but then as I moved to Sweden, I started, you know, moving from business intelligence development to business development in itself, uh, and then product management. Uh, and during my the last few years working specifically product management, I've been particularly focused in products in its very early stage, usually B two B. So now, actually, I am uh, at this very moment I'm in between jobs. So I'm leaving the company I work now. It's a, a, a small startup owned by Sunvig, focused in software as a service solutions, uh, and joining a fintech that has just been created. So I'll be the first employee there, you know, with me and the CEO and the investors. And uh, I think it will be a very exciting journey. And I've, I hope to have more moments like this, you know, meeting with fellow product managers because I'm sure that lots of questions will be raised during this journey. <laughs> In tech! Yeah, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm glad, yeah, because Bruno, you just like competed against Anna straight away, just saying, I don't want any rivalry going on, please. Um, right, okay, let's nicen things up to the health tech arena, Olaf. Yeah. Uh, Olof Söderbaum, I uh, joined Cree one and a half year ago. I am uh, old product management within telcos. I've been working for, uh, I would say that I've been working for all telcos in Sweden except three um, <laughs> in different roles, but mostly uh, within business to consumer. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm schooled by Jan Stenbeck, which is um, also very, <laughs> it's one of my biggest legacies and also biggest challenges going into working at Cree, which is totally different to what he did. But we're challenging the healthcare uh, business. And at Cree, I am since February uh, the growth product manager for one of our business areas, which is Digi Fiscal Integration or Digi Fiscal Healthcare, which means that we are responsible for both digital and physical healthcare. So yeah, maybe you've seen that we opened healthcare center in Stockholm. And uh, that we did on 1st of September. So uh, I'm responsible for making that happen. Uh, Here I can say growth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> growth. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna get pinged like every or every time at five six when people go home they start sending all their IDs and then comments about what we're doing and not doing, and then I need to solve those down. It's like okay, let's see what we can do with those ideas. So, <laughs> the backlog. But I'll try. Backlog. Yeah. Uh, and finally, Anna with the best headphones uh, in the group here. <laughs> yeah. Um... Of course. So uh, I, uh, basically, my background is uh, that I'm an uh, engineer from uh, KTH and I've been uh, freelancing uh, as a product manager. So I've been at lots of different uh, companies. Uh, most recently, I was at uh, SPAB. Uh, and before that, I did a lot of like uh, e-commerce. So I was at uh, Polen och Pyret uh, and Bonnier and Magazines. And I also was at more like the media industry, so SVT, um, lots of different places, but I've always been focused around, uh, you know, product development and uh, systems development, basically, because that's what I'm uh, passionate about. Um, yeah, I think that's basically it. Fantastic. Yeah, all very nice introductions. I put down eight minutes for this. Yeah, you've managed to rattle through that. So... I suppose let's crack on, yeah? Um, Olaf, I've got you down uh, as number one, yeah? Cool. Um, do you, have you got your question in front of you or would you like me to share the screen? Uh, what you could, you could present my question, but um, then I could like just uh, take over. I think we're all into the same challenge as I am. Perfect. So hopefully. I'll, I'll, no, yeah, yeah. If no, yeah. If no one has an answer to the question, it'd be pretty awkward. So try your best, everyone. <laughs> um, so uh, the question was: uh, with changing patterns of work, consumption, and others, tech companies stand at the intersection of exciting opportunities and un unprecedented crisis. How are successful product managers navigating the situation to gain competitive advantage? advantage for their companies so i yeah, suppose and, yeah, yeah give some go context to the, yeah yeah i got the, the context around is that yeah you all know that what happened in february uh, i was the one of the first that got the coronavirus in sweden because i was skiing in ishko so i brought oh. it back to sweden in the beginning of march <laughs> um but what oh. what just quickly became clear for us at Kry, but also in general when i spoke speaking to my colleagues uh, as well as friends is that no business is immune uh, so there's been quite a few uh, bankruptcies, uh, companies that are defaulting in general, uh, companies that have been total pivots going a totally different way in their business model in order for them to uh, succeed on a, in a new uh, business environment, especially for you, Anna, I've been working with e-commerce as well as like Poulan and Pyret, and it's like how they need to change their business model to work. But for me, it's been very clear that the consumption behavior of healthcare has been dramatically changed in more or less than six months. Like before Corona, digital healthcare was like, man, it's like a hotline for doctors. Now it's, it's business as usual and will most likely be the most dominant type of care for the upcoming years together with vaccination for Corona. So that's why I'm keen to understand how you work with your products as well as with your companies in order for you to stand uh, stand ashore with the things that are happening because everything is changing like on a daily basis now with directions and routines and guidelines that comes out from the 
from the from the from the government. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, um, just a general answer is uh, to just uh, keep track of what the consumer basically does, like how she changes her behavior, what trends are here to stay and what are just, you know, uh, short time changes. Uh, and that goes like the same with the competitors to keep an eye on them. And then also, obviously, like the government, what new regulations are coming and what are going to be here to stay and what are just here like a short time. So I think uh, like there's a lot more pressure to keep up with um, trends and uh, like uh, to follow the data basically in these kinds of times. So have you implemented like new, new um, since we have like all the tools that are in place and everybody, all the companies says that they're data driven, but I doubt that we've been that data driven that we are right now, right now because we need to, because we have no idea what happens tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, so have you implemented any new tools or like ways of working after uh, post Corona? I would uh, say that uh, I'm like I'm I'm all I'm always following like different blogs and forums and stuff like mm -hmm. that uh, to just keep up with the right uh, trends uh, and to just like filter the information to just get the most important ones. So I'm just uh, exchanging uh, what I'm following much more frequently now uh, and sharing that with my colleagues in a, like more of a yeah competence network in slack or whatever you want to call it so that's at least one thing uh that has changed rapidly um what do you other guys have for input on this yeah one pattern i've seen is that uh well forget that roadmap you had showing you know what will be developed six months one year from now right like this doesn't make any sense so what i'm seeing with a bit in my job, but uh, mostly a lot we also with consumer products the more directly affected yeah, by the pandemic, like people try to reduce the time it takes to to iterate. So like they're trying to have a, a shorter release times or collect feedback from the customer as fast as possible. And also other thing I've been seeing people discussing a lot is like how to make the assumptions you have evident because for every leap you do right every new release anything you try we try to do we have a bunch of assumptions and some product managers some companies have that more clear than others and now it has been the moment that we need to revalidate all those assumptions so i think that's a key thing i've seen people trying to to focus on that not always easy yeah yeah, I, that's 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 great to hear. But I'm just quite calling to you, Anna. Then, since you're in growth as well, how how much mm -hmm. revisits have you done to your backlog as well as like the product roadmap? Because we yeah. switched so many things. I mean, I used to be in growth. <laughs> um, <laughs> now I'm in another department. Um, but uh, absolutely, I I can just I I couldn't agree more with what Bruno said. Like the the long term. Uh, roadmaps they they are not working um and if you were having some list of insights which uh, actually were uh, fundamental for your strategy right now those insights are not valid anymore because situation changed situation for i mean our customers and merchants uh, their situation changed uh, consumer behavioral changed which affected those merchants um so of course we need to adjust um I think your question was uh, about competitive advantage. Um, I can say that uh, 
processes and the culture in the company is uh, the things which, which might support in these challenging times. Mm -hmm. So if you have a culture of, uh, you know, if your insights driven and if you have a certain flexibility around what can be changed in your roadmap, if you have a culture of challenging roadmap, if you have a culture of focusing on why instead of focusing on what and how, uh, then I think these kind of companies are going to survive and they're going to get out of this high uncertainty times even stronger. Uh, and by processes, I meant ability to change, ability to change your plans and adapt because uh, now we need to move much faster and in much smaller iterations than we used to move. Uh, specifically because you need to validate your ideas and your assumptions on the market and uh, uh, some companies are going into like uh, data-driven mode but um, now from the growth perspective it's very hard to run any like a b tests or anything because no. the, con the the consumer or uh, business's behavioral is shifting dramatically so you can start your experiment with one uh, point of view and you will not be able to answer this assumption uh, just because that's like um, uh, it's it's a rough times <laughs> it's very very mm -hmm. different from where yeah. we used to be um, mm -hmm. how so do you shorten the iterations what steps are you skipping I mean um, I, I can only speak for myself so I always was a, a, a <laughs> Not all of my teams were in the same. Oops. What happened? There was okay? a large noise gun, yeah. It sounded, like a, it sounded like a dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't me. Continue, Anna. So I kind of one week sprints, uh, but not all of my teams were accepting it. So I, we needed to adjust and maybe run two week sprints, three week sprints. But now, like, one week is already quite quite big horizon to plan for. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't have any specific recommendations for, on how to shorten iterations rather than um, try to question uh, everything on your roadmap and uh, try to connect it to specific insights. Mm -hmm. And uh, now it's harder than ever to run any kind of user interviews. So we, for example, we needed to shift all our user interviews online uh because we cannot afford going to our um, merchants and do it in person as, as we used to be because we wanted to observe them in their environment we wanted to learn from how they run business but like they cannot prioritize it and we understand that they cannot prioritize this kind of activities mm. so we do our interviews shorter more like uh intense straight to the point and online mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what, what I try to look now also is that like the problem with when you are data driven for the few, for the companies that manage to do to be so is that the data only tells the past, right? So like if, for example, I don't know, next week we get a coronavirus vaccine or something, it came again. Yeah, if you get a coronavirus vaccine or something, then pro certainly the attitude of the people towards many industries will change, right? So one thing we've been discussing is that like how we analyze data, what kind of data can we get about the consumer, the user sentiment about your product, about the situation? You know, like the market research says that uh, when a company, you know, a service provider especially, really 
you know, like makes a difference in a delicate situation for the customer. You know, like when you, you maybe you you arrived late in the hotel, you missed your flight, and then the company managed to help you or something. You know, like with any company, any any type of experience. This is the type of moment when you really you you really develop the loyalty of the customer. You know, like it has a strong sentimental value for the customer. And I believe that this moment we're going through now, you know, being able to cater for those customers, you know, that fall in weird situations, bought a service, a product that doesn't make sense anymore. And so the flexibility of the company, the customer success management is going to make a, a strong impact in how this company is, these people going to perceive the company afterwards. Mm. Does that answer your question, Olaf? I think so. It's still, like we've been on the, sadly say that we are, we've been on the good side of this since like our core business is actually to taking care of Corona. And mm -hmm. we had as much growth in March that we had for the full year of 2019. So it was like, a, yeah, it's been a great year for us so far, but, but still we, we have, we struggled to, to understand what this will actually mean for our consumers and how they will continue to interact with us. And in fact, what way, and, and especially now when we're bridging and, and creating physical, uh, physical locations, it's like, how do we use them in the best way possible going forward? And as Bruno says, data just, says, just tells us about the history. And it's so hard for us to yeah, look, at, look into UK right now. It's like, okay, now we're gonna close down UK again totally it's like you're not allowed to go outside <laughs> okay mm. what does that mean for us and and to be honest a lot of our or like partners some of them is like they loses all the revenues and just goes out of business and that doesn't mean that okay we're slowing down or we are increasing our iterations and and getting our go-to-market reduces that like 50 percent but still they have no revenues at all they can't do anything and they just like need to shut down their business on a, on like from from week to week um but uh, good good points i think our our my view on it is just like to focus on ways of working as anna says like okay how do you na actually nail this on a daily basis and start prioritizing stuff that actually really matters like what's important in real life and try to uh, try to trigger those points and and, and to be relevant like in, in in that sense possible um but uh, it's yeah, it's quite frustrating as well as challenging since it's a mm. it's a pandemic. So mm -hmm. yeah, it sounds like you need a crystal ball to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> unfortunately, I've not got one to hand. So um, oh no, but it's br it's a brilliant question, isn't it? It's a brilliant question, and I imagine one that everyone thinks about that uh, thinks about. Um, okay. Unless anyone's got any further points, um, Anna Sintnikova, Izetel, you're number two. So I will read out the question. You take over, um, give some context, give your thoughts around it, and let's have a discussion around this. Um, so Anna's question was, uh, as a product manager, how do you make room for strategic work and research given that you're swamped with operational and reactive work on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, yeah, I can give a little bit light to, to this question. I mean, I understand that there is no right to wrong answers to this and uh, maybe something what will work for all of might not work for me, but I would like us to share about it because that was my personal struggle 
for some time um you know like when you have one or several teams and uh, a lot of crises are happening and uh, uh, you might be planning something for a week uh, related to like long-term vision research um you always need to you know drop everything and get to help this crisis so how to get out of uh, things and like prioritize this strategic uh, activities uh, prioritize more of uh, research or prioritize more of experiments or any kind of you know stuff which gonna pay back in the long term that's basically the question how do you do it i'm feeling the same at Cree since we have very strong investors as well as like our founders are the small popes of the company so they always have uh, comments and, and thinking and what i try to do is to is to push back and actually ask for more questions so if there's a panic to do something uh, or if there's like okay this patient called me and said this and he did that etc etc i'm just pushing back and saying that i need more data than just having your gut feeling and or maybe one patient or one consumer so i'm trying as anna's like asking back questions and, and also try to get more understanding of why it's so urgent for them and then also place it on the board saying that okay this means that we will need to to take away other things that we're doing this week so which ones do you think that i should uh, down prioritize and it makes so it them, it's mm -hmm. much more clear for them saying that okay i'll do this but that does mean that we'll need to put this away for two weeks and it means that we will lose those other things that you were uh, were longing to have so trying to put everything up on on the board saying that okay you need to have the full picture so it's also like an educational part of it saying that okay this is how the business work both from a short-term perspective as well as long as a long term so i think it's so like you you're using yeah. a concept of trade-offs right like yeah if we if if i not gonna do this then mm -hmm. or if i gonna yeah. do this this will be affected mm -hmm. yeah and yeah. that tends to be that tends to be like the second step I think the first step is actually, and that's hard now in Corona time, is actually to sit down with the person who's who's uh, shouting or asking for the change, trying to understand why the change is that urgent. Because mm -hmm. sometimes it's just that, okay, it's not that urgent actually, because the business impact is not that high, but for yeah. you it's urgent. Okay, I hear you, I, I can understand your frustration, but let's bring it to, to the context of the whole business, it's not that urgent. So is it okay mm -hmm. if we do it next week or the week after that? And it tends to be like, okay, we had a good discussion. It's in your backlog, it's in your plan, et cetera, et cetera. And then yeah. if that doesn't work, I'll go into the trade-off. Yeah, that, that, that's a very good point. Uh, I, I had lots of problems like this in my job at Spotify. And I remember what we tried to do. The only way we managed to solve this is like, well, every, every time you have some stakeholders saying that their problem was the top priority, exactly as Olaf says, bring everybody to the same room and say, okay, so should we be doing this to help the stakeholder A and not help the stakeholder B? And then this, these are the consequences for the company, right? And then when they need to say, not to us, but to the entire group, you know, like, yeah, okay, fixing this X issue is more important than this other issue then they think twice you know so i think that that's the one thing that helped a lot and also i i think your question made me think a little bit about the team's culture uh i realize that some teams like some developers they're more used to work or the entire team they are a bit more reactive in a way that's like they only 
they they don't have space for interpretation maybe they don't have much knowledge about the products themselves so every time the something goes a bit beyond what was you know drawing the line then they need to you know call the product manager in so i think i i have the impression that when the the entire team feels more ownership and you know, like a deep knowledge about the product you now understanding the customer and so on I think this helps a little bit to for the product manager to not get exposed to lots of punctual small decisions and so and only get involved in the in the big crisis as you say. Mm -hmm. um, another thing I wanted to add was that um, uh, we had like uh, like with all of my uh, stakeholders we had uh, agreed upon a um, like a priority matrix if you want to call it that uh, mm -hmm. so we said that 20% uh, of the time was going to be spent on maintenance stuff and uh, like 50% was going to be spent on new development and 30% on projects so when, when when someone come up with something we need to categorize it first so is it maintenance like just like an issue ongoing issue with the customer involved or something like that uh, or is it just a new development a feature that we want uh, or is it more of a long term change like a more system change or a, like a, i don't know manual report that needs to be done or whatever some figure needs to uh, be uh, sent in or something like that uh, so first we just uh, categorized it um, so then uh, then we had like uh, then it was obvious to everyone because uh, we had a visual board uh, to see what we prioritized in that lane so to say uh, so maybe just clustering the different uh, initiatives mm -hmm. yeah we we actually had done something similar in terms of initiatives uh, we also tried uh, something we called on duty because um, some of my teams they uh, were like receiving a lot of questions from stakeholders from other teams um, so we were picking up one responsible for a week who is like basically distributing those questions and deciding uh, should we uh, like react to them or uh, should we postpone them or should we put them into backlog or should we ask more questions in order um, to even start discussion about them? Mm -hmm. Th this actually helped a lot uh, for me as a PM to uh, be less reactive, you know, on uh, everyone's uh, questions. Um, however, the, you know, this kind of uh, strategic initiatives which are going to pay back in the long-term horizon, it's still quite hard to prioritize. So yeah. another thing I tried is to prioritize it for the entire team, not just for myself, uh, and then make the entire team focus on this, uh, let's say, new hypothesis uh, or new assumption, and then have like maybe shorter than design sprint, but like two days design sprint in order to uh, answer some research question. Um, and then we're like full-time focusing on it and then it means I have less, I don't need to do it myself, right? And uh, then I uh, have less distraction from the team uh, because I need to be involved in specific issues. So this helped, but uh, I guess there is still room for improvement. And uh, thank you for advices, I will, I will try. One question though, like how did you organize that one person was answering or prioritizing all the questions coming in? Like, did you have a common mailbox or like, what? how did we you? Have, 
we have uh, a Slack channel, which is uh, like with a title of my, with the name of my team, and a lot of stakeholders and support sometimes uh, coming to the Slack channel. We of course have all of this support queues and everything, you know, like when it comes to Jira. Uh, but then there's might be questions outside of the scope of one user. Um, or there might be questions from other teams or uh, some suggestions. So uh, I heard this feedback, I heard that feedback. And uh, we wanted to basically umbrella the team from this kind of exposure for, for the outside. And it's either can be done by PM is receiving everything and filtering, but then it's like too much load on the PM. Mm. Uh, or we we tried this, like we have one person who's like on duty and uh, they monitor this uh, um, Slack channel plus uh, team uh, inbox and uh, basically distributing things into uh, this goes to back backlog. This mm. here's how you can request uh, help from us. It has to be this, this, this. Uh, uh, this should go to another team, um, mm. but not starting to act on it. Like this is the common agreement we have. Like you're not trying to solve issues on the fly. You're just taking mm -hmm. decision uh, where it should go. Mm. Um, and that helped. But uh, as I said, there is still, there's always room for improvement. If there was coming someone in person, because that was a problem that we had, people always came to ask one person in the team. Uh, how did you like shield yourself from that? Uh, automated reply, please contact this uh, email or this Slack channel, like without reading. And uh, oh, no, they, come... They, came, they come to you, to you in person, like knocking on your shoulder. Like, how do you? I mean, I don't have it anymore <laughs> since, since March. <laughs> Nobody but my husband can knock my shoulder. But uh, previously, I mean, it was pretty hard to find me in the office. I'm always have meetings. So, um, mm -hmm. like I have a. I usually have a stakeholders forum. Doesn't matter which team I'm working with. I, I always have a weekly with all the stakeholders um, when they can come with this um, suggestions, questions, or requests. Um, so if somebody is touching my shoulder and saying, "Hey, Anna, I have this amazing idea. We need to discuss right now." I'm saying like Friday three o'clock. That's the time and the place. Mm -hmm. um, Love that. Love that. <laughs> but uh, as somebody mentioned, like feedback coming through big executives, uh, panic, Olaf, I think, said like panic from panic feedback from one merchant. Like, I mean, it, it takes time to to iterate. Mm -hmm. I also was sweating previously a lot when I was receiving like through like high executive uh, some feedback from one merchant. And then you're like, okay, but that's one one merchant. And like, we accept the feedback and then we're gonna mm -hmm. take it through the process. Yeah. And I mm -hmm. think as like being PM is also, so you can call it like you're the CEO of all shit on the company around your products since you're getting <laughs> like high and lows. Yeah. But I think to be honest, goes back to educating also the people that just knocks on your shoulder Mm -hmm. tell you like okay this is the thing that needs to be done or change it's like okay then start educating them and also making you making clear that you have like a five minute elevator pitch about what you're actually trying to build and why this like it is so mm -hmm. uh, i believe that all the times that i have people prompting me saying that okay these are the things that are bad because it's like 95 percent of when people are addressing me that it's because they want to change something or mm -hmm. improve or do something new. Mm -hmm. I'll try to involve them in like, okay, this is the story that we're building. 
this is a great idea. We will put it on like in our in our in in our in our like backlog ish, like you said, Anna, categorizing them. It's like is it maintenance or is it more of a strategic uh, proposal? But going back to it's it's about educating people at your company that you're building something both short term but as, as most important on the long term and making mm -hmm. that elevator pitch pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one thing I felt in my experience that for most people around you, when you say no to them two or three times, you know, I cannot answer this now, sorry, there is the channel, blah, blah, blah. Usually they comply, you know, eventually they, they give up. Uh, and mm -hmm. then the people who keep uh, pushing for that, then, yeah, well, then you maybe you need to talk to their manager, you know, like uh, it, 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 this needs to be a policy that the entire company knows and so. And uh, also one small, Find a cool hint that I learned some years ago for organizing my own work when I was getting cluttered is a bit similar to this work you say that person on duty does is uh, called getting things done that is a book about it and basically it's a methodology for your work your own you know organize your own work so like you know, every time you receive your, your bills your emails then you look into it and then okay this I can do in two minutes then you take action now this is for later for home and so so we organize that in boxes and then you create a uh, let's say a, a rule for you a number of times of the day go through that and, and take action on the things keep things moving so I highly recommend this book there are many methodologies about organizing your work right but I I avoid going on burnout uh, uh, when I start to work as product management because I yeah because I didn't have a methodology for working like this organizing my daily work yeah I guess we need to learn a lot while while working yeah. And, and especially now, actually, I have a question which is outside of the list, if I may. Like, what changed for you with uh, working from home? Fewer meetings. <laughs> I got more meetings. Oh, okay. No, but it's like not that much. Like, people understood that some meetings were unnecessary. They just wanted to hang out and talk shit. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I think fewer meetings, but the hardest part, I would say, is that. At at Cree, where I think we're 18 p.m.s at the moment. 18? Oh, 18, wow. yeah. So we're highly depending on each other, both from like components that are built, both from a global perspective as, as long as from a local perspective. And, and those like more um, easy meetings or just like grab, grab you by the coffee machine, those are gone now. So it's hard mm -hmm. for us to find those quick synergies as well as mm -hmm. keeping up the information. But we have like now we introduced a, a weekly backlog like refinement together on Thursday, which is the one that I came from before this meeting. And that's like an amazing opportunity to sit one hour with all the PMs, discuss the sprints, what went wrong, what went well, and also to try to ask the questions like, okay, why are you doing this? Why is this the epic that you're focusing on? And how could maybe France leverage from what you're doing in Sweden over? Mm -hmm. So that changed for us, but still it's a struggle to keep up with all the things that are happening in all product teams. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I really miss that, the, this, as you say, quick interactions on the coffee, like, mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, for me, like a lot of interacting with the team, you know, when just having some idea and then like, uh, how it is to, to be to develop something like that or so, or you know, how something like that is going. Oh yeah, nowadays, I don't know, It's in, I, I feel my meetings, they became shorter. I think people 
spend less time, you know, like socializing and stuff. So I have more meetings, but they became shorter, which it feels more efficient. But at yeah. the same time, I lose efficiency because of this lack of side communication and talking on Slack, you know, it, it works. People are nice, but you never know if they are stuck on a meeting, if they're really, you know, working very focused on something. So it's, it's tricky. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know how, but I got more meetings because before, like a lot of uh, stuff was getting solved uh, by like, you know, you coming to the office, you meet people in the corridor and you learn about the uh, mm -hmm. like latest things. So somebody is highlighting like, oh, you need to learn about this project. This is not happening now. Now all the interactions are scheduled, like either mm -hmm. in the calendar or you really need to approach a person. I of course got more Slack messages and, and than I used to have, and I'm really, really missing this, you know, casual interactions and learning about problems of other departments. Um, so I'm, I'm actually looking forward for coming back to the office. I don't yeah. know how about you. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I, 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 I think it's like easy, easy thing to do that I started doing like a couple of weeks ago or months ago when I spoke to Chris as well is that everything was extremely formal when you have to hang have hangouts or meetings around everything so i actually stopped uh, shut down my slack and start calling people instead mm -hmm. because people just got so confident i was like oh, i'll slack you or i'll have a meeting i was like yeah pick up your phone and call me <laughs> it's it's nice to actually speak to someone yeah and, and you actually can solve that problem in the call rather than just like okay i'll ping him i had an uh, i mentioned you in a thread i was like yeah but why didn't you call me if it was that important yeah. Like, and it's so much so faster. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about the phone. Since you were like, oh, I'm going to be like super fast on Slack and having all yeah. these uh, amazing meetings. And I was like, less meeting, more phone. Let's call each other. I don't yeah. have their numbers. <laughs> yeah, I know. Figure it, figure it out. You need to call on Slack. You can do that. Yeah. 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 So much quicker. And also, yeah. if you like, obviously, you need the fast answers. So. It's like so easy to solve something when you're calling someone. Mm -hmm. mm. Right. Interesting. Thank I am, you for sharing. That, that's incredible. I love that. Yeah. To be honest, I face a lot of these daily problems too, but I won't go into detail. But um, you're not the only guys to be going through this. Um, okay. Next question we've got. Um, Bruno. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read out Bruno's question. Mm-hmm. In the very early stages of product development, how do you explore a reduced user base, mostly of early adopters, for reaching product market fit for a mainstream audience? Yeah, so as I mentioned to you guys, like I work a lot uh, these last few years in products in its very early stages. And uh, especially now with the pandemic, you know, like uh, it gets much more complicated to approach uh, potential customer or somebody, the demographic you want to talk with, exchange ideas, and even, so this is already much more difficult, but like, even when you do that, then uh, the people, when you're creating something new, they they are not, the people who are gonna talk to you in the beginning are not necessarily the people you want to sell to be the biggest audience, because, you know, like usually people who are gonna play with a proof of concept or something like this, they are early adopters, they are very geeky in their areas, so they are very opinionated about that. 
And then, uh, but ultimately, these are mostly the feedback, you know, the type of people who give you feedback. But uh, and it's important to listen to them. But you need to keep looking at the mainstream of your audience. So, like, have you guys been through that? And do you guys have any advice uh, on how to survive on this? Um, I can I can jump in if if I may. Um, so. I agree with you that like building for the early adopters is quite different for like mainstream audience. Mm -hmm. um, however, while you like talking to your early adopters, um, I, I like to apply this lens of power user. Um, yes, it might be your early adopter, but I think you should have in your head a pretty solid picture of who is your power user is. Yeah. Uh, or assumption of this power user and then you might filter out insights which you think are not relevant because they're geeky early adopters mm. um that's one part another part is like i'm big fan of uh, when we talk about early product market fit and uh like validating your ideas uh, on the market before even building it i'm a big fan of things like a fake door test Mm -hmm. um, uh, fake it till you make it kind of mentality um, because this might give you ability to go to a bigger portion bigger demographics mm -hmm. um, and of course you are limited with like what you can expect from this kind of experiments mm -hmm. but at least you can uh, like increase your sample size mm -hmm. uh, because I guess this is what you're after yeah. how to validate assumptions from the early adopters on the mass market or mass uh, users, you know? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So I think this is what helped me, but like, that's how I recall my examples. Maybe yeah. your example is slightly different if you give a little bit more light on what you're yeah. trying to. Yeah, I've been working a lot of B2B products, right? So like uh, in this, in the job and uh, that I'm well about to leave now. We we create a, prod, a product for digitalizing and automating the machining industry. You know? so like you have a in the a small machining shop in the countryside, you know, somewhere in Europe or so, and uh, the person needs to produce a metal part, you know, like let's say a car brakes. And then we usually, when I talk about this, people imagine lots of robots doing that. That's not the reality. Usually there is no like a people with 20 years of experience in that industry and they do lots of gut feeling adjustments and they hear the machine, they touch the machine, feel the vibrations. Oh, that's not good. So then they adjust this. And of course, this is a very onerous process. So my, pro my, my product's about adjusting. Yeah, it's about uh, making this smart. So basically, we, I collect data from a number of sources, the tools, the machine, you know, all the suppliers involved, some parameters about the, the operation. And then I tell to the operator of the machine, okay, you need to configure your machine like this for optimizing, you know, this operation you are doing. But the problem is that uh, there are some similar products in the market, but they are built by engineers. So like nobody used them. They're even owned by other parts of Sunvik as well. Uh, and then you enter the product and they have like 20 parameters for, uh, for the user to configure. And then, and the engineers who build that, they're very proud of that. Yeah, because these are very important, all these 20 parameters. Yeah, but people don't really use that, right? Uh, yeah, but they will, maybe they're not good enough for a product, they say, you know. So then, like, what we're trying to bootstrap now, simplify this a lot. Instead of 20 parameters, we get, let's say, 
five parameters or so, you know, and then we need to make assumptions on that and stuff. But then the problem is that the customers tend to like the idea, but uh, here I see a key difference between like a average customer who just wants to get the job done from a very geeky customer because they'll say, no, but the 20 parameters, they're they are cool, they're important. Oh yeah, but, but you never configured that. I was watching you. you. You always use the default value. Yeah, but I want to be able to, to use it. You know, in some moment, there'll be a day that they will be relevant and stuff. So then like, I start playing around with this and like as a bit like kind of say, like I, the best way for me to exchange ideas is creating drafts and drawings and so, but even still there is, it's very difficult when you, you, you have a very early product to, to, to discuss with people about something they can't feel the pain yet you know about how this is going to integrate with my product and the day-to-day -day lives oh this only runs on let's say android and here we have windows or whatever these are the type of questions that i i'm learning to push them you know to answer to think about but when you just show sketches you know like diagrams and stuff they, they can't really think that right so it gives some insights but not much so yes, uh, I, I don't know. I just wanted to be more efficient on that. <laughs> wow, that was a pretty solid example. What I heard from you is that you already have a default settings for these 20 parameters, which is a great mm -hmm. start. If there is a default settings or like a configuration by default, and uh, you see that not so many users are actually adjusting them, then you probably can give up on the 20 and go to five. That's one part. Another is like, I'm usually not letting user to decide uh, on things like uh, which platform, like as you said, Windows or Android. Uh, mm -hmm. I think you need to do all of this uh, pre-decisions and pre-assumptions before and don't yeah. let them choose and show them what you actually uh, yeah. trying to solve to, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. And in this early stage, do you guys have like a more direct, uh, regular contact with customers? Have you guys involved in something like this? Because yeah, I, I think feel... that, yeah, yeah, I think that is, is crucial when you have a small user base to have like daily interactions with those customers that you yeah. have, especially in B2B. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have uh, customers that will like generate referrals or repeat interactions, then you don't have the product market fits and then you're out. Yeah. So I think we did that like on a daily basis, calling out like, why did you use it uh, use us this time? Why was it uh, valuable for you this time? And also looking into like their behavior and the product, saying that okay, mm -hmm. these are the things that people are clicking on and going back to. Okay, how could we accentuate that even more and get get like an acceptance of that feature or that part of the product? Yeah. So I think we had like creating our ambassador program having started with 10 then we went up to 50 and then we had 100 and then we have 250 it's like okay how do we have that interaction most almost like on a daily basis mm -hmm, mm -hmm. cool because nice. that's also made it so much easier to create a lot of mvps so keeping yeah. that pace up saying that okay we have an mvp that's 60 percent and then we launched another mvp and then we tried to see rather than doing 60 80 100 we had like mm -hmm. eight 60 percenters out and then we just like try to to get those al along along each other and try to see how we could mold those back uh, yeah. them together mm -hmm. yeah i think one problem i, I feel that uh, we had for user base that they were very now we're finally managing to narrow them down you know we're defined properly a segment because 
this group of users I talk with, many times they ask for very different things. And it, can, it feels a bit frustrating for me to, every time I get in touch with them, say, oh yeah, I know that you say you really needed this certain thing here for make things work for you, but now actually I'm prioritizing something completely different. And so, so like, I think with this regular uh, uh, interaction, we are big, beginning to build intelligence to narrow down our user base to focus on the type of customer segment we want to do, because otherwise, we were just upsetting people by you know saying that we are listening to them and we're gonna build things for them one time but we know that they are not they're not anymore our main segment let's say because we're learning from the market right so i think I, I i just need to learn to let go from some of these early customers we've been in contact with and focusing on the niches only the ones that we're trying to serve at this very moment because i think eventually people get a uh, yeah, it's appointed, right? If we don't, we promise, but never deliver because they're not on our priority list. Mm. But then I think also getting out the point that you, what you deliver and not what you not deliver. So it's like, okay, we've been speaking about this, uh, but this is what we're now we're delivering. So we're solving a part of your problem, but maybe not the whole one. So it's back to like educating our customers of what mm -hmm. we've done with their comments how that affected the product and then just like how we how we actually made that happen and then just focusing on actually the things that got done rather than the things that not got done yeah, and yeah. inform them of uh, like how big of a request it is like uh, yeah. oh, this is really like a uh, low-hanging fruit uh, mm -hmm. so that then we will resolved uh, within a couple of weeks maybe but then because usually they, they don't grasp like the input yeah. needed to solve uh, this and that they're just like brainstorming popping up different features yeah. from nowhere so mm -hmm. kind of like uh, informing them i think we did the t-shirt sizes like this is a small this is a xl this mm -hmm. is a you just kind of give feedback to them yeah 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 nice no that's cool Okay, okay, brilliant. Last question, yeah. Um, so Anna's question is, how can a product manager best promote an innovative spirit? How can they grow and maintain a challenging mindset and an obsession of solving customer problems throughout their product organization over time? Big question. <laughs> uh, well, the background is that obviously you don't have, uh, well, you have <laughs> enough stuff to do <laughs> all the time, um, but it's also a matter of doing the right stuff. Uh, so, and sometimes like, uh, I love the times when uh, like developers or designers or anybody else just pops up an idea of a new feature and just like shares that straight away and we're like, uh, evaluating a little bit and I take it to, you know, back to the stakeholders and we have a, you know, evaluation and stuff like that. And then it, then we decide to do it and we like fly with it and it goes so well. And it's just like this fairy tale story that happens once or twice, but it's just like the best feeling ever to be able to, to deliver and take something from, uh, from within the team, basically. Uh, so just building that, spirit uh, so that people dare to be innovative and uh, challenge what uh, kind of input do you have on that well, one thing i learned from that uh, every, every time i like now you know that i change jobs recently is have a very 
in deep conversation with the people hiring you and the leadership about this because I think product manager this influences a lot of course your work as product manager but creating a work culture in which people feel comfortable you know sharing seed ideas you know trying things and failing and so like this depends a lot of the of the leadership of the company to implement the culture and we are just one part of it so i think the the best thing the, the first thing to do in my opinion would be this like making sure that you have endorsement from the company practical endorsement for pushing for you know innovation and then here comes all the ideas you can discuss how but like for doing this change mm. i think if having this uh, huge company culture about innovate around innovations is very important however um, it's quite hard for one person to impact to influence it you know mm -hmm. um, so i think the culture within the team is equally important. Um, I think it's, if I recall it correctly, Marty Kagan said that like engineers are the main source of innovations. Um, and I really believe in this. So uh, I'm trying to look at this from the angle that I'm like, I'm helping them to focus, uh, not just engineers, but designers and analysts, everyone on my team. And I'm trying to provide them the most necessary information needed in order to solve specific challenge of our customers, mm -hmm. users. Mm -hmm. However, I'm never uh, telling them how they should solve it. So I'm always focusing on the why part. Uh, like this is what we're trying to achieve. This is why it's important for users. This is uh, the problem which they're experiencing. I'm trying to expose them to all the user interviews and all the insights um, while actually discovering something. Um, and this makes them think about these problems and that makes them generate these innovative solutions. Because sometimes it could be that you as a PM thinking about this problem much longer than anyone else on your team because you had uh, some pre-research or like uh, insights uh, coming through your stakeholders and you immediately, like that's the human nature, you immediately start running into solutions and based mm -hmm. on your expertise and where you sit, that might be the best suitable solution. But mm -hmm. your teams and your engineers and designers, they know much more about the domain. They're the real experts in this domain. So try to suppress this feeling of like, I'm going to go and share with them a brilliant solution. Instead, mm -hmm. like give them this why and let them find uh, the best solution. Um, yeah, that, that would work for me. And then we were ending up in a... Um, in solutions which were like amazing from mm. my point of view like i would never ever think about it or i would never mm. ever solve it this way so uh yeah sometimes you just need to shut up and exactly yeah. and then you're also yeah. like forcing the developers to really understand the problem because yes. lots of different developers they're just like you know they're just like coding they're not like mm -hmm. really like putting their mind into the business side of it or the customer mm -hmm. side of it they don't even use the product themselves and stuff like mm -hmm. that so the only thing is that they're coding and they want the requirements to be put down on a paper and then you could just like code 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 all day yeah. uh, but i love the um, how you are encouraging them to think for themselves that's a really good uh, but i think also i i'll struggle with the same thing but i i want to come to the point that the developers find out the why by themselves mm. so Ooh. actually coming to me saying that okay i have found a loophole in the system or mm -hmm. i have an idea that our technical platform actually can enable so both that i let them have the why 
-hmm. from me. So like all the things that I've, I've been driven, but also I want to have it on the other way around that they can come to me and say that I have a, I have a thought about something for a, a while. And this is the why. And then, so getting that mindset and that I think goes back what you said, Anna, okay, how do you get developers out of their technical mm. coding like focus mm -hmm. to actually saying that, okay, how do we bring value on an everyday basis to our patients or to our consumers mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. customers in general? Mm. Because I listened to Martin Lorenzon's summer speech this summer and he was like, yeah, my key enabler for being successful is that I had a great understanding of the technical possibilities. And that's what our developers have because they have an amazing mm. technical understanding of what, for example, in Kriya, our platform could actually do. Mm -hmm. But I want them to start thinking, okay, how could they then actually make sense for our patients? Mm -hmm. And we're not there yet. So I'm also trying to find the, <laughs> the best way of doing that because we have some amazing developers doing that. Exactly. That now mm -hmm. our PMs are, are actually product directors, but the mainstream developer are extremely good at getting the requirements, yeah. doing that in like three days, and then we're done. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what they're, why they're doing it. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think this that you say relates directly to, to what Anna also mentioned, like when you shared responsibility of, you know, I don't know, we have this new need, this new feature, and instead of bringing the solution straight away involving them, I think we start, I feel that we are referring to a certain a sense of ownership that developer, developers have, and this causes them to understand better the whys, right? So for me, I, I worked a lot of running like discovery sessions every time we we need to pivot the products, you know, or trying something new or so. But uh, one thing I am trying to learn and learning how to make space for is this type of developer we talk with more like a maybe he cares too much on about coding or maybe he's just too much shy or introvert. So it's important also to know your personality of your team well and try to make space for that person, maybe not in front of everybody, but reach out to you in some other moment and, and you know, exchange some ideas about how something could be built and so. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. okay. Is, Thank it, you. <laughs> fantastic. I've wrote, I've written some things down here. Yeah, it's important I tell you. Yeah, and these are what I thought about our, the conversation here. Polite, intelligent, insightful, informative, and I'm just lucky to have such an incredible four people. So thank you so much. Yeah, because it was great to listen to, and you're all incredible to be honest. So thank you. Um, thank you.